Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal & Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Good afternoon. This is Sarah Stogner with the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast. I am back today for another episode with my captive insurance friend, Hale Stewart. So thanks for joining me again, Hale. I'm glad to be back, Sarah. So for those that it's been a week since our last episode, and we kind of talked about the basics of captive insurance and how they go about maybe deciding if they could be a good candidate for looking into whether that's a viable option for them and then kind of what to expect. So Today, the plan, I think, is for you to kind of ask me, we'll do kind of a question and answer on some more specific insurance gaps in the oil and gas sector. Yep. Yep. And just to give the listeners a bit of background, when Sarah and I first started talking about this, one of the topics she specifically mentioned to me were gaps in coverages in the commercial insurance policies. And that I'm, I'm assuming, having heard that from her, that that's something that she dealt with and wanted to deal with. So let me first of all open up and ask a very general open-ended question. Why don't you give me an idea, just a bit of background on some of the gaps that are out there in the insurance policies that negatively impact the oil and gas sector? Yeah. Okay. So I think the best way to start is to kind of look at what are some typical policies that let's say an upstream operator would have, right? Okay. So they'll have a general liability policy, which is meant to cover third-party liability, meaning if they go during their operations and there's an accident that damages someone else's people or property, that's kind of the big picture intent of a liability policy. Yes. They will have an umbrella slash excess. An umbrella, people use the words interchangeably, right? But those nerds of us we realize that there is a difference. And so, you know, the umbrella oftentimes provides more coverage than the underlying general liability policy. I'm so glad you said that, by the way, because as soon as you said that. (laughs) (laughs) And then the excess will sit on top of And oftentimes it does what we call follow form to the underlying policies. And so you can have a, say, a a general liability policy, an employment practices liability policy, a directors and officers policy. You know, you can have all sorts of different policies and then have an excess policy that will sit above those, right? Yep. Then, so some other ones are a pollution policy either a site-specific pollution policy. So if you're, like we were talking in the last episode about a refinery that has a big one big facility, it may have a pollution liability policy for that one facility. Or in the upstream sector, you may have a pollution policy that covers all of your mineral leases. Or if you're a contractor, you'll have a pollution policy that's a contractor's pollution policy that follows your work 
and it's other people's property, but it provides some not only sudden and accidental pollution, but some more long-term, slow and gradual pollution coverage. Then we've got a well control policy. So if there's a blowout that provides the cost to bring that well under control, the cost to redrill or recomplete a well back to the same condition that the well, original well was at when you lost it, some care, custody, and control coverage, meaning if the drilling rig's damaged, there's tools in the hole, tank batteries, the property that's right there that is lost as a direct result of that well control incident. And then finally, they usually have pollution coverage as well, but it's limited to the pollution that's a direct result from a blowout. So if you've got a flow line that ruptures, or even if you've got some hydrocarbons from a well, if it's just from the well pad and there's not an actual uncontrolled flow of fluids that meet the definition for the well out of control, then there's no coverage. Because a lot of times drill, you know, companies think, oh, well, I've got pollution coverage under my general liability sometimes, and I've got some under my well control. I don't need a standalone pollution policy. That's a, that's a big kind of misconception in the industry. You've also got Again, what other companies which should typically have. So employment practices, if someone alleges that you wrongfully terminated them or harassed them, you've got directors and officers. If you've got stockholders that sue you and say you've mismanaged the company, if you're doing anything professional, so we're both lawyers, we have professional liability insurance, right? If we make a mistake, first party property. So sometimes companies will insure their well pad sites. A lot of times out here in West Texas, we'll get lightning And so the tank battery will go up. Business interruption. So if there is some type of covered loss, right, then you'll have the lost profits that you would have had, but for the lightning striking and and taking out your your facilities, right? How about cyber? Cyber. Yeah, yep. So cyber. And, you know, that's a big one that I've been on a kick on lately that everyone thinks of cyber and they think of kind of the big box retailers getting hacked. But in our industry, yeah, I mean, your well data and, you know, you're, you've got some proprietary information that you yeah. probably wouldn't want someone else to have, but that's not what they're after. Where, where we're seeing kind of attacks on the energy sector and the industrial sector is really bad guys that go into your system and then are able to remotely open valves or chokes or... Really? Yeah. And so using them as essentially using your facilities as a bomb. So, oh my God. Yeah. You want to make sure that, wow. (laughs) Right. Say you're operating a midstream company and you've got a pipeline that goes a couple hundred miles. And along the way, there's all these different valves that you can close off. So if you need to work on a certain part of that pipeline, you can shut it in. Right. And a lot of those are on remote, they're remotely monitored, they've got pressure gauges to make sure that there's no leaks and things like this. Well, what a hacker can do is if they can hack into your system, they can override those sensors, for example. So they could remotely close or open a valve and... It's kind of that you'd see the bad guys in the old days, like Ocean's Eleven, right, where they splice the video and it looks like there's nobody in the vault. Yeah, 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 yeah. On replay. Okay. So you can, it's the same kind of thing as that, but instead of, you know, video camera, it's gauges and pressure valves and monitors for making sure that there's, if there's going to be an overflow, that it stops. So for example, if, if you've got an oil tank battery 
and you don't have it pipelined out, a truck has to come, tanker truck, right? It has to pump that oil into the tanker truck and take it away to go get it refined. Well, there's float valves and things in those tank batteries that once they get to a certain level, it shuts off the well and makes sure that you don't overflow oil and gas all over the ground kind of thing, right? So there's all sorts of opportunities for bad guys that want to do bad things to try to hack into your system. The other thing that we're seeing is wire fraud. So for example, if you're wiring money and we had a we had a client not too long ago that actually had a hacker go in and fool their payroll people into changing the direct deposits for some of the employees to a different bank account. And so all these people started calling on a Friday saying, hey, we haven't been paid. And they said, what do you mean you haven't been paid? It came out of our bank and a little bit of digging around. And it turns out that someone had clicked on a phishing email, right? And then what happens is once they're in your system, they just sit back and watch the email traffic. And they don't care about your Friday night plans or your credit card number or any of that. What they care about is your bank numbers yeah. and and access to your systems to be able to remotely change and kind of go in and recode all of this stuff. And we've seen attacks in the Middle East. We've seen attacks in Russia and the Ukraine. There has not been any published attacks on U.S. soil as of yet, but I guarantee you it's coming and they know they're learning on less sophisticated, less secure servers Yep. so that they can come here and wreak havoc. So yes, I think cyber really is a big deal. Okay. First of all, I would simply interject here that we haven't heard about it, but I'd be surprised if it hadn't happened yet. I would assume a company's just keeping it quiet. Yeah. Or maybe the company doesn't even know. Yeah. Which is, by the way, not unheard of in the area of cyber liability. Right. So, and by the way, while Sarah was talking earlier today, I was, oddly enough, I was going over a Texas-based commercial cyber liability policy. And this covers, you know, this provides blanket blanket coverage. What she's talking about is what the insurance policy calls a cyber incident. And that's where a hacker basically has an outward attack directed at the home company's computer. So here's the short version with cyber. I can't think of a reason why anybody would not need this policy for a couple of different reasons. One is that it's, it's excluded more and more from the other policies, so it's, it's, it has become its own separate standalone policy. Secondly, either A, you have confidential client information, or B, you've got confidential company information that you don't want out. And just that fact alone means that cyber makes sense, FYI. Yeah, or... Or another example, if you get a hacker in and they do this thing where they they say, you can't get into your computers. And if you don't send us this amount in Bitcoin, right, we're not, you're going to be locked out of your computers permanently. An extortion so threat. Still, yep. Yeah, exactly. That still happens. And But then, you know, where I think that the cyber is still lacking in the general market, because I don't think that there's enough of an understanding, is the bodily injury and property damage. And so some of the underwriters out there that are placing energy coverage are including a limited amount of bodily injury and property damage, even if it results from a cyber incident. They'll exclude the data recovery, the PR, you know, all the other kind of stuff that the ransomware, the things that are in traditional, quote unquote, cyber. They'll provide some still in the policies, but not all of them. I just looked at 
a policy a couple days ago that has a new exclusion for making it clear that data is not considered property. Really? So, yeah. Wow. That's wow. Okay. I won't publicly shame them and name drop, but you can. Call <laughs> and by the way, something else to add here: cyber's a new coverage. I haven't done a case law search of the cyber policy, but in comparison to like a, C, a commercial liability or property policy, where there's a boatload of case law over decades, there's just less guidance that a lawyer can give you about cyber liability from case law. Instead, right. relying almost exclusively on the policy language and then basic rules of contract interpretation. Yes. And a lot of it's being provided by surplus lines. So you don't have to go through the traditional commissioner of insurance at each state route, right? Oh, gee. That without, so there's, there's really not, I think ISO finally came out with a form cyber policy within the last two years. But when I looked in 2017, my friend, my friend James Ho and I, we started talking about cyber. And I think when I looked, there was something like 14 cases in the entire country yeah. that were addressing. So I'm sure that that has increased, sure. but I guarantee you there's probably, you're in the three digits, right? I would be shocked if there was more than a couple hundred cases now addressing cyber. Yeah. So by the way, just as long as we're on the cyber topic, go back to 2013, when the the target hack happened, and that, to my mind, was when suddenly, oh my dear lord, you know, this is a really big issue. Somebody that came out looking at at targets SEC filings. They had a captive for 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 some of their policies. So they're underwriting the first layer of risk for their cyber through a captive. FYI. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. I'd be interested to see how they're doing it now. You know. Oh, who who, who knows? There was an article in uh, Risk and Insurance. Anyway, you know, I, I read so many articles every day that I forget who writes who now. But short version is the number of claims are increasing in the cyber policy area. Claim size is increasing, so I would expect to see premiums increase in the cyber area coming up. Again, think about all the damage that it does, all right? You know, I mean, first of all, there's a loss of information. If a customer's information is stolen, typically you have to repair that or that, that's on you. So, I mean, there are all these costs that are associated with it that are very that can get to be very expensive. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's something to be careful with. What I'm seeing also is sublimits. So yep. they might have a package policy and they'll say, oh, well, you know, don't worry, you've got cyber. We've endorsed it to include some cyber coverage, but it'll have a $100,000 sublimit. I can tell you, if you have a major cyber attack, your $100,000 is going to be gone in a couple of days. Yeah, pretty so. much. And you know, I've, seen, I've seen sublimits a lot lower for certain instances. I remember I was putting together an insurance program for somebody in the last year and it was a situation where there were service provider, they had confidential information, they didn't have a cyber policy, but they had a couple of the cyber was built into a couple of other policies, and the limits were just laughingly low. It was like twenty five thousand dollars. I was like, that's just that's not surviving ten hours, <laughs> you know. Right, right. That's gonna be the retainer to get the experts out exactly. To if that at that point. So now if I could let me jump in real quick. Sarah ran through a lot of policies there. And let me kind of frame this a little bit. In the U.S. insurance world, there are two, at least I call them core policies, CGL, commercial liability, and property. Those are like the bedrock insurance policies. But each of those policies has a number of specific exclusions. And that's when we were getting into like employee liability, pollution, 
directors and officers, site well issues, cyber liability, and that type of stuff. And all these create, and again, a Hale Stewart term here, an insurance tapestry that hopefully works really well together so that all of your risks and all your liability are, are handled by the insurance coverage that you've got. Right, right. Yeah, you kind of weave a basket together yep. and hope that whenever it falls into it, you don't have any huge holes that that really mess you up, right? Yeah, but then the problem there is that you know you have all these contracts that are supposed to interlock theoretically like a well-constructed Lego house. In reality, it's usually not that well put together. Right, right, exactly. So now going back over this, from your experience, what's the biggest problem you've seen from a third-party insurance coverage perspective in the, for the oil and gas area using the ISO or just industry forms? Okay, so me personally, it's, and it's because I was involved in the case. I was appeals counsel in a case called Pioneer v. Steadfast, and it came out of the Fifth Circuit in 2014. And that case was the first time. So back, let me back up. You know, we talked about how general liability policy is intended to cover third party property yep. and, and bodily injury. And so it's not your own. So a, an analogous example is your homeowner's policy is a first party. It's intended to cover your home and, and the things in it, right? Yep. And and so it, this is pretty much the exact opposite. And yeah. so there right. is what's, it, it's in the, the J exclusions under the ISO wording, and it's some version of an attempt to exclude first party property. And it's called, usually it says something like, we don't cover any property damage to property that you own, rent, or occupy, Sometimes yeah. it says something like, or a property that's in your care, custody, and control. It's the intent of that is to exclude your own property being damaged. Exactly. And so the Pioneer case in 2014, we got hired on to write the appeals and then argue it in the Fifth Circuit, was really the first time that I had seen there what happened was that there was a well that was in Southwest Louisiana. It was a producing well, which it had a blowout. And so it was in marsh. It was in a marshy area. It wasn't, there was a pumper gauger that was going out there and checking the well, but it wasn't like when you're drilling a well or working over a well and there's someone on site all the time. The guy went out there once a day, you know, checked the pressure gauge, checked the tank battery levels, and then went on his way. And so he gets out there and notices that there's a sheen. And by the time he had gotten out there, the well had had blown out and had started seeping hydrocarbons into the marshy waters and grass. Oh, joyous so, day. Yeah. And it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I say that being from Midland, living in Midland now, it's not quite as in the middle of nowhere as Midland, but the, I would say probably the closest Osro team was an hour away in Lake Charles. Yeah. And, and by so, the way, if I could jump in real quick, I've got the language of the CGL here that you're referring to. Okay. A CGL has an exclusion for property damage to, quote, property you own, rent, or occupy, et cetera, and then premises you sell and property loan to you. But the issue that I think you're getting to is the property you own, rent, or occupy, correct? Yes. Yes. And so what happened was they call out an Osro response team. They come, you know, they deploy the booms. They, they're able to get into the well, really put a wellhead on it, shut the well in, and but it ended up costing them, I think it was about eight or $9 million sure. by the time it was all said and done in pollution response. And so they had a 
sudden and accidental pollution buyback under pretty traditional general liability wording. So in other words, the policy starts out with saying we cover your legal liability for bodily injury and property damage arising from an occurrence. An occurrence is defined as an accident. And then it says, but notwithstanding, we don't cover any damage that's a result of pollution. And then there's an endorsement to buy back sudden and accidental pollution coverage. And so it's oftentimes called a time element or sudden and accidental pollution. And for those of my guys that listen to me, they'll, if they go and look at their MSAs, there's I would say there's a 99% chance that their MSA would require them to have sudden and accidental pollution. Sure. And so, and there, there's usually three or four requirements. One is that it's sudden and accidental, that it started on a specific date and time, that it was known, that the incident was known to the policyholder within usually about 30 days, and that it was reported to the insurance company within 90 days. Some of them have different times, seven days, 21 days. I've seen them as, as short as one day and three days. So, But it's a, it's a very strict requirement for timely discovery and timely reporting. Sure. And so it's also, I'll do a whole nother episode on border row reports, but it's the reason that I suggest all of my guys have monthly incident reports that simply get sent to their insurance company so that there's never an argument of, well, we didn't know that there was a pollution incident. You just send them all of your incident reports and say, here's our, here's our border row report. We're not making any claims, but we're just reporting at all the incidents that happened this year or, you know, this, this last month. And by the way, that's a great idea in and of itself right there. Yeah. Well, thanks. So anyways, long story short, Steadfast Insurance Company came in and said, aha, this was within the bounds of a mineral lease. And, you know, you guys had a few hundred acres and all of the pollution was within the boundaries of the mineral lease. That's property that you own, rent or occupy. Ergo, it's excluded. Yep. Ergo, it's excluded. Now, never mind that this is wording that's been in the ISO wording since the 80s. They've been using this wording to ensure oil and gas operations for 30 years. No one has ever used that wording to exclude the surface damage to property. Although you have a mineral lease under it, you certainly do not have the exclusive right to use it. It's not like when you have a residential lease or a commercial lease where you have exclusive right to use the property. It's not even like an agricultural lease where maybe you're sharing the surface rights with other people, but you pretty much have the exclusive right. The rights under a mineral lease are very limited, that you're only allowed to use as much of the surface as is necessary for your operations. And so we had always interpreted it and the way that claims have been paid historically had always interpreted it as your well pad site, where your actual facilities are. So if there's if it's all within your half acre well pad site, then that's the property you own, rent or occupy, not the entire 300 acres of your mineral lease yeah. or whatever it is, right? So that's a, that to me is the number one issue that still has not been addressed. Now, they are still placing these policies with this wording in the oil and gas industry. They will endorse it to modify it, to clarify that it does not cover your mineral leases or your pipeline right-of-ways and servitudes, but it is still very much an issue in the industry. And the standalone pollution coverage that's being written is what we call difference in conditions and sits on top of the sudden and accidental pollution coverage in general liability policies. So 
a very viable or, you know, it's not totally crazy for me to say I can imagine a situation where there is an incident. It should be covered under your general liability policy. They take this, quote, pioneer, you know, kind of interpretation of the wording. And then the pollution says, well, we're difference in conditions. You have to exhaust your general liability before we kick in. And oh, by the way, if you've got a million dollars under your GL, then you're essentially becoming self-insured sometimes in, in situations for this pollution yep. coverage. If if it falls within the insuring conditions of the standalone pollution policy. Yep. So it's just not a great area for guys that are out there operating today. And by the way, if I jump in real quick on a couple of real, real quick points to the listeners, something to remember about your insurance policy is that it's not a formally drafted document. That is, okay, each insurance policy you get, is a, it's a collection of forms that are slapped together by an underwriter. So as a result, these types of problems slip through a lot more regularly than the insurance industry would want to admit. Something else to remember is that pollution liability can get, first of all, very expensive very quickly. And there's some really powerful statutes at the federal level that can force it, force the liability on a third party. And my guess with the insurance company is that they were looking at the size of the claim, the nature of the claim, and they're more importantly probably worried about the continually escalating nature of this. And they probably said, you know, it's a whole lot cheaper to defend this than to pay it. At least just my initial thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only cynical one. (laughs) (laughs) But by the way, a cynic is just a disappointed realist. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, look, we are we are seriously almost out of time on, on this one, but I do think that you know the cyber and the pollution are kind of the two big picture items yep. that if if I wanted someone to come away from today's episode with kind of a well, what's the big picture moral of the story is as an industry, we need to be talking about this. Yes. We need to be sharing our experiences because underwriters are sharing it with each other. Yes. And I guarantee you that you know Travelers is sharing with AIG, is sharing with Chubb, is sharing with Berkeley, right? They all know each other and share information. And policyholders don't have that luxury. And usually we don't like talking about our accidents and our lessons learned. I mean, it's human nature, right? But I urge people to kind of be out there and be sharing this information, good experience with insurance companies, bad experiences with insurance companies, because we've got to stick up for ourselves and we've got to help each other out because in those situations, it's really helpful when you have, pardon my French, a BS denial like that to be able to say, hey, you paid an identical claim. Yes. It might not have been, it might not have been $10 million, but you paid an identical claim that was only 400000 six months ago to my friend at, at Joe Blow Operating. Yeah. This is a ridiculous interpretation of the policy. And let's just go ahead and get this claim paid. So I think if policyholders did a better job of communicating, that we would, it's a whole lot easier to get claims paid when you have evidence that analogous claims have been paid under the same circumstances. So Totally agree. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And for this episode, we'll go ahead and, and put your contact information in it again and in the show notes. Sure. And maybe we can help some people with some captives and, and try to fix some of these problems. So I'm completely on board with that one. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And we'll talk soon. Take care, Sarah. Bye-bye. Thanks. If you guys could do me a favor and like 
leave a review for this podcast. That's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before we're heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour, as well as Midland, will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay. Now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help Redeemed Ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This Forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operator Needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd. 
where the deals happen. 